is uploading the virus. Eagle One, the package is being delivered. Hello out there on the internet, I am Matthew Galt, and this is Cyber. It was just a video of young people dancing. On January 31st, a court in Iran handed out a combined sentence of 10 years to a couple who danced outside of a tower in Tehran, Iran. A film of the brief dance went viral on Instagram and Twitter. They were 21 and 22 years old. The woman was not wearing a hijab. The long sentence for a viral post is part of a pattern in Iran. The country is an authoritarian regime where protests and acts of rebellion are becoming increasingly common, and in response, the regime is using technology and violence to suppress its people. Iran is in fact a pioneer in the use of new technologies like AI and facial recognition to suppress dissent and enforce the will of the state. With us here to walk through all of this and kind of explain what's going on is Masa Alamardani. Alamardani is a senior researcher at Article 19 and a doctoral candidate at the University of Oxford. Uh, Iran and its pioneering use of technology for authoritarianism is her area of expertise, I would say. Thank you so much for coming onto the show and talking with us about this. Yeah, thanks for having me on the podcast, Matt. Excellent. So for people that kind of don't know what's going on, as I know this is a story that I would say has really been unfolding for a decade, but uh, recently in like the past year um, has heated up. What is happening in Iran? When did it, when did this recent cycle of unrest start? Yeah, so it has been happening, I guess you could even say for the past four decades, um, since the beginning of the Islamic Republic, there have always been different ebbs and flows of protests and dissidents against um, the state, which I think most listeners would know um, uh, the Islamic Republic of Iran is considered an authoritarian state with very little space for freedom of expression, for civic space, for any kind of dissent towards the state. And, you know, um, pretty soon upon the establishment of the Islamic Republic, you know, a constitution um, and an Islamic penal code that was created that were very strictly um, put into law all the restrictions there could be with very draconian um, and often vague laws. Um, you know, you, you have one law that um, is a crime. The crime is sowing corruption on earth and, you know, um, committing such a crime is extremely vague and can be anything from, you know, protesting on the streets and blocking, blocking a road to, you know, um, doing any kind of, um, online activism or media work against that would, you know, have narratives against the state. And so, you know, we've over the past four decades, we've seen numerous executions over, you know, the crime of sowing corruption on earth, which, um, you know, many Iranians often even don't know what this, um, this uh, article of the penal code is. Um, so, this systems of inequality and injustice are really built into the state, have been built into the state. Um, but, you know, there have been different kind of eras since the beginning of this regime in terms of what we've seen. You know, we had, you know, student protests throughout the 80s and 90s. Um, you know, most notably, we had a green movement in 2009 where, um, you know, there was a hope that there could be some sort of change and some sort of progress. 
through the system by voting in someone more progressive. And of course, that turned into a whole protest movement when, you know, there were accusations of election fraud and that the regime had kind of um, rigged the elections to bring in their populist conservative candidate, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, into place. And of course, you know, um, the 2009 Green Movement protests um, were one of the very first that took place on Twitter, that took place during the era of social media. And so it really ushered in that era of, you know, what we saw during the Arab Spring and what we saw online. Um, Fast forward up to, you know, 2017 and 2018, we from basically 2017 till now, we have seen different outbursts of protests continually, and they've been sparked for different reasons. In 2017, it was sparked because of, you know, a proposed budget that the administration of Hassan Rouhani had put out, and it was, you know, very much triggered by economic um, issues, um, and it it was affecting, you know, a specific socioeconomic strata of Iranian society, Um And then, you know, fast forward to 2019, we had um, fuel price hikes that really sparked um, the protests. And now fast forward to um, September 2022, the spark was um, the murder of Gina Amini, or now known as Masa Amini, the Iranian Kurdish woman who was killed by the morality police while she was in custody. Um, while, you know, there were these different sparks for these different um, movements, um, they all kind of came down to very similar demands, very similar protest slogans, which was, you know, um, death to Khamenei, the dictator, the supreme leader of the Islamic Republic, down with the regime. Um, so very similar kind of cries of, you know, there are no rights, there are no opportunities, there's corruption, there's injustice, we want this regime gone. And so this has consistently flared up time and again. This time, however, we have seen this protest eruption turn into a movement. Some people are calling it a revolution. And it is certainly different in terms of the longevity of what we've been seeing since uh, mid-September Till now, this has carried on um, and um, we're still, you know, living through it. There are still protests um, and this is still carrying on. Obviously, it takes on different shapes and forms. It doesn't look the same every day. It doesn't mean hundreds or thousands of people are out on the streets everywhere every single day. But we have been seeing kind of a continuous flow of, um, you know, protests, chanting and mobilization in its various shapes and forms for many months now. So something that you said at the beginning of that, that I think is important to highlight here uh, in the West, we there, it's kind of uh, it's kind of a given that social media is bad for us. Um, and that, you know, it's, it's, it's poisoning our brains and we spend too much time on it, etc. cetera. Uh, I always like to remember that in places like Iran, the role of social media is very different and very important and and does some very important things. Can you talk about that? The importance of Twitter and these other websites? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, I would like to, you know, um, zoom out first um, and look at the whole kind of media information ecosystem in Iran. The Islamic Republic 
since you know before the internet was introduced they have been trying to centralize and control the flow of information and news they control you know all state broadcasting they control newspapers um you know you saw, you do have independent journalists and folks like that but right now the majority of independent journalists who you know toe the lines of government restrictions they're mainly behind bars right now especially in their attempts to have covered um what has been happening since september with the death of Gina Amini. Um, so, you know, reporting and journalism and media is heavily constrained and restrained by the regime. Even, you know, foreign cons- correspondents and foreign media, um, their presence in country is oftentimes, you know, not allowed or if you do have foreign media there, it's heavily restricted. There, there's minders. There, you know, we had the Bloody Friday massacres that happened in Sistan and Baluchistan at the end of September. There was no independent journalist or media able to go there. No foreign correspondent was given access to Zahadan, the city where this massacre happened. So what happens is, is there's in order to find any real kind of truth and documentation, you have to have the internet. And so um, regular citizens, anonymous journalists, activists are doing the work and labor of documenting and reporting on what's going on. And so everything we know about what has happened in Iran has come through the internet and through social media. Of course, you know, there isn't this perfect vision of, you know, liberation technology that's going to free Iranians from the hands of um, this authoritarian regime. But of course, um, you know, lots of work is being done to verify this kind of information. Um, so it, it plays a very crucial role. Um, and of course, you know, the regime knows this, which is why we have been seeing very heavy restrictions. I mean, we see it at any time there's any kind of protest. But, you know, from the very um, first day that the, these protests broke out, we started seeing um, protest disruptions and Internet disruptions throughout the country. Um, immediately, they censored and blocked the remaining kind of foreign uh, social media platforms, Instagram. Um, and WhatsApp, you know, within the first few days, um, the regime announced for national security reasons, they were blocking these platforms. Um, and so there has been an on, like a onslaught of aggressive efforts and methods by the regime to really try to curtail the use of the Internet. And in some ways they have been successful, um, but in some ways, you know, um, activists, folks on the ground have been playing the cat and mouse game and trying to keep up. What is this National Information Network? Can you explain this to me? So this is a plan um, that the Islamic Republic has been trying to develop. It's It's been over a decade. They've been toying with this idea. Um, sometimes it takes on different meanings and shapes and forms, but essentially... Um, like they have, you know, controlled state broadcasting and newspapers and traditional media, they want to centralize control over the internet. And of course, this is impossible given, you know, the global network that um, shapes the internet. And so um, what, like different kind of um, iterations of this essentially say is that since, you know, global international um 
internet access means that they don't have control over it. They don't have control over um, websites. They don't have control over social media platforms. Alternatives of all of these internet services need to be made. Iranian versions, national versions that are hosted. Um, and so uh, Iranians should have access to that. The infrastructure behind the National Information Network, um, it's it's not always clear exactly what it is. Um, for example, during 2019, the 2019 protests, um, you know, some of the worst kind of it's one of the darkest, I think, periods in Iranian history when, you know, during the week where we had Internet shutdowns during November 2019, it's estimated the regime killed about 1500 protesters with the help of the darkness of these Internet shutdowns. Um, while this Internet was cut off for a few days, um, with many glitches and problems, we notice that um, while you couldn't connect to global internet services, you could connect to kind of national services. And so um, access to national traffic was basically allowed. You could, you know, uh, check your um, bank accounts that were hosted on this network um, or, you know, hospital appointments and medical systems that were online could be accessed. Of course, this happened with a lot of glitches for a few days. That even, that infrastructure wasn't working while they shut off the rest of the net. Um, it, it hasn't necessarily been working like that this time around. We haven't been really seeing, you know, um, quite the same kind of differentiation between the international and the national internet um, access during these recent uh, protests. I mean, there have been movements where, you know, moments where people on certain mobile carriers say, well, well, we can't access international services, but the national ones are accessible for like a little while. But the majority of um, the attacks we've seen on disabling connections these past few months have been more along the lines of cutting off you know, mobile connections and protest areas or instating mobile internet curfews, um, which of course is, has a major impact um, in a country where most users are using um, mobile data and their mobile phones to connect to the internet. Or we've been seeing, you know, regional internet shutdowns in, you know, provinces that have been seeing some of the worst um, and, um kind of the worst scenes in terms of protest repression. Um, this has been happening in Kurdistan and like I mentioned before in Sistan and Baluchistan, which are these kind of marginalized um, uh, areas where ethnic minorities like the Kurds and the Baluches uh, live. And so we have been seeing kind of a day, numerous days or weeks where we've had internet shutdowns in those provinces as well. So it has been a very kind of, it's unclear exactly what they are doing with the National Information Network right now. Um, but, I mean, there have been the main effort that they have been, it seems, investing in, which is developing the technology to kind of block circumvention tools. So Iranians have been using virtual private networks, various circumvention tools and proxies to circumvent the censorship on, you know, blocked internet services. Majority of foreign, you know, platforms are blocked inside of Iran. So the regime has been developing sophisticated technology. We think, you know, 
automated systems for um, snooping protocols for circumvention tools and blocking them immediately. So that has been one of um, the main concerns for folks on the ground is not being able to find any circumvention tools. So they have been putting a lot of effort and resources into, you know, AI technologies for kind of um, this kind of anti-circumvention work. Um, And it has been making it quite difficult for, you know, users to mobilize, communicate and document. I mean, every kind of piece of content we have been seeing since September come out of Iran, there's a story in terms of what lengths that user had to go to to achieve connectivity, to get that content on Twitter or on Telegram or on Instagram, you know, finding the right internet connection, having enough bandwidth to upload, having the right circumvention tool that's working at that, at that time on that network. So um, these are, you know, massive hurdles that they put there. And um, it does, you know, if this kind of censorship wasn't there, it does let us to question, like, what more could we have been seeing? What more documentation could there have been um, in these past few months? What do you think of, I know that there's been murmurings of something like Starlink going to Iran. Uh, do you think something like that would be helpful? How would that even get into the country? What are your thoughts? Yeah, so Starlink is an interesting topic. Um so in, I, I would say this is a fantastic, you know, way to go about things. Um, and there have been a number of reports, there have been a number of activists who have been talking and who have documented that they have, um, you know, smuggled in Starlink devices and tried to connect them. Um, and there seems to be reports that in some instances they have worked, Um I haven't personally been able to document or see any user who has been using it. But then again, it's a country of 80 million. So uh, I don't know everyone. But um, just through my networks and folks, I haven't necessarily had that experience of knowing someone who has been connecting. But there has been a lot of reporting um, and touting of this working as a solution. Um, but yeah, I, I don't have much information on it, but there has been a strong, um, campaign, um, a a strong amount of, I would say coverage to say that this is a solution that's working. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a system that comes with some strings attached, but then everything does. Right. Yes. All right. Cyber listeners, we're going to pause there for a break. We'll be right back after this. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. All right. Thank you for sticking around. We are back on talking about Iran. So another reason I wanted to talk to you is it's not only 
this kind of authoritarian control over the internet that Iran is pioneering, but they're also linking in, as you kind of mentioned earlier, artificial intelligence and facial recognition systems, right? So how, what kind of, it sounds like uh, within the country of Iran itself, it's a pretty connected country, right? You said medical records, um, you can pay your bills, all this kind of stuff happens online. Um, but the more information that you're you're putting into a regime-controlled system, uh, they build out a surveillance state on top of it, right? Can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, this kind of effort of being a surveillance state has always been there, just the technology for them. I mean, all of the kind of controls that we see from censorship online to surveillance online, offline. These are all basically foundations of the Islamic Republic that have always existed. Um, the concept of surveillance or, you know, shunud was the Persian term for it, has always kind of been part of the politics and the intrigue of what has happened. Um, and so Iran has been investing a lot in technology technology development, of course, you know, some of the best engineering schools that would rival, you know, MIT and Stanford um, are in Iran. I mean, Sharif uh, engineers are famous and, um, you know, occupy a big space, I think, in the U.S. tech ecosystem as well, you know, the alumni. So there's a very strong foundation of technology development. And of course, there has been a lot of investment in the development of AI and all these technologies. Um, however, um, you know, with, um, uh, there has been a number of government announcements over the years and how they're, you know, investing in, um, the internet of things and AI. Um, I mean, the, the work that they had been doing on, on various different things like national information network. At one point they were working on smart filtering technology to be able to, you know, um, filter specific pages on Facebook or Twitter. Um, you know, it's been documented that they've spent millions and billions in U.S. dollars on some of these projects. But in the end, if you go look into them, there's been so much corruption and mismanagement that not a lot sometimes comes out of some of these, you know, government funded projects. Um, so similarly, there have been a lot of these announcements about AI. Um, and of course, you know, with what has been happening with um the morality police and the strong negative sentiment against them. There have been elements within the regime who think, you know, the easiest way to kind of sweep the, the issue of protests and dissidents and anti-regime sentiment would be, you know, let's get rid of the morality police and all this will be gone. And of course, that's, that's really not um, the solution to what anyone is asking for. Um, so there have been a number of announcements about rounding up the morality police um, and in its place, putting in, you know, facial recognition and surveillance technology to be able to do the work that the morality police were doing in terms of policing what women look like um, in public spaces in terms of wearing their hijab correctly or not. Um, it's hard to know exactly what they have developed in terms of um you know, these facial recognition systems in the streets to detect, um, you know, hijab. I mean, if you go on GitHub, you can find there are some facial recognition depositories right now that do have this option to detect hijab um, from, I think, Western Project itself. So obviously it is possible. Um, and we have, I mean, I have 
documented myself several cases of women um, who have been identified wearing um, breaking hijab laws in their cars and have been, you know, later ticketed it and, you know, asked to come in. Some have been asked to come into the same morality police station that Gina Amini was um, detained in before her murder. Um, and so, I mean, it, it, the experience that I've heard from women so far has been more like a speeding ticket. You know, you've been caught um, in in your car as a woman and kind of identified through your license plate and your ID that way. So some combination of, you know, what regular the, traffic surveillance and um, hijab recognition, I guess. What does the hijab look like on, on a person when they're in their car and they're flagged? Like what were the specific infractions or is it even, does it even tell people they just, they just told that there's an infraction and they have to show up. Yeah. So, I mean, um, if you have spent any time in Iran, you quickly will notice that women do take the opportunity to use their cars as, you know, their own private spaces. And so usually you notice very lax to no hijab on women, um, in, especially in Tehran. Um, so now that they're able to kind of police this um, space, um, it is quite frightening, obviously, and a kind of new frontier um, that they're building to kind of further infringe into uh, people's lives. Um, so, I mean, I know in the several cases that um, the women that I know that were ticketed, they were like kind of wearing their hijabs as shawls around their necks, or it was just very barely on their heads. And this, I mean, this has always been a very, I think, common occurrence, which is because it's very hard for you know, you to be stopped as you're in a moving car. Right. How ubiquitous is camera placement? And are they visible or is it something that's kind of like hidden? Does it fade into the background of the city? What does that look like? Yeah, I mean, um, I think uh, the spaces that you see in terms of CCTV and surveillance are very similar to, I mean, in Tehran, very similar to other um, places, other big metropolitan cities. I mean, we've been seeing. One, there's one kind of telegram channel that's run by um, the Revolutionary Guards to post a lot of their propaganda, but they also end up posting a lot of their CCTV and surveillance footage to ask to kind of outsource the identification of certain individuals through the surveillance footage. Um, of course, this is very problematic and harmful that telegram is posting this, but we are seeing evidence of this, you know, very regular um uh, metropolitan city surveillance footage. Um, so, uh, and I mean, in some instances, we've seen the use of like drone camera technology in some cities. Uh, but yeah, it is very hard to know exactly what kind of facial recognition kind of technology is being used wide scale on a national level. But certainly if you look at government announcements, they are constantly talking about this. I mean, they're kind of, hijab policing, facial recognition, technology announcements um, have been very open and public. But of course, it's very hard to know exactly kind of who are the vendors behind these technologies and exactly how it's being rolled out. So the regime is pitching just to make just to make sure that I'm clear, like um, morality police, well-documented uh, history of abuse, murder, um, you know, kind of 
you picture the these guys that are kind of wandering around and you know pulling women to stations, beating them, ticketing them. The regime is now pitching the idea of automating all of this with the surveillance state, using facial recognition as a way to avoid the violence of the morality police. Is that, am I kind of, am I getting that correct? I mean, I think avoiding violence is the wrong term because essentially everything they're doing is, has violence at the root of it. It's a different kind Um, of violence. You're right. Yeah. I mean, the violence is still part of the fabric of the story. Um, So, I mean, it's far more efficient, uh, I think especially for this detecting women and cars issue, which I've seen spurred up, um, it's definitely a frontier that you didn't have before. I mean, it's very common kind of daily life habit of women to figure out where, you know, morality uh, police patrols are or detecting the patrols from far away and like creating a new route or a new system. Um, but of course, if you don't know that th- w- there's a camera here, you have a different way. And if, and this obviously means that you'll have to deal with the state more often. Um, and then obviously, you know, detention cases uh, can be very horrifying. Like, I think one in five um, individuals who pass through any kind of detention experience abuse and torture, probably <laughs> my um, my estimate is much higher. Um, so it's not going, the use of these technologies is going to further endanger people. Um, you, you, you touched on something a little bit ago. That's a tangent, but I want to, I want to get into, cause I, I, it's interesting. And I don't think a lot of people are talking about it. Uh, telegram. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. so I really, I've been on telegram for a while, but I really started using it. Um, in February when Russia escalated its war in Ukraine. Um, and I noticed mm-hmm. that because of what I would say Telegram's laissez-faire policy to content moderation, um, a lot of the war plays out there. And I can see like the direct, com- the direct propaganda communication that Russian officials have with their people. Um, is that also similar to what's going on with Iran – um, and I guess my big question is, you called it problematic that the revolutionary uh, government is able to kind of communicate directly and spread its propaganda through Telegram, um, and Telegram basically doesn't do anything about it. Uh, can you kind of talk about the role that Telegram plays in what you do, um, and what do you think Telegram should be doing, if anything? So, like you said, they have a laissez-faire approach to content moderation. And so when it comes to social media, you know, we were just talking about the potentials it has to for activism, for documentation and human rights. Similarly, social media has so many potentials for harms. (laughs) Um, And, you know, over time, platforms have developed a lot of uh, policies to deal with these kinds of harms. There's obviously international standards in terms of what kind of human rights restrictions need to be put into place to remove content when censorship is needed, obviously, you know, Um, and these are, these are things that have been thought on for years and years within, you know, the United Nations amongst different experts and activists. I mean, the most famous um, standard is the robot plan of action. It's a six part test um, to say when some, uh, when a piece of content is harmful and should be censored. 
Um, obviously, Telegram does not use these standards. Um, I mean, big corporate giants like Meta and Twitter, they're a bit better. Obviously, they're not perfect. There's still a lot of issues. Um, you know, Meta is one of these platforms that probably censors more than most. They have more restrictions. Um, in the Iranian context, um, sometimes this works to the benefit and sometimes obviously it works to the detriment because sometimes they um, they implement and make a lot of mistakes, especially in the Persian language. But one of the policies they have is called the dangerous organizations and individuals policy, which means that entities like um, the Islamic Republic's Revolutionary Guards cannot have any presence or accounts on meta platforms. Twitter doesn't quite have the same policy, um, but, you know, they have some threshold for removing harmful content. Telegram, however, is where, you know, the Revolutionary Guards have flooded. They have hundreds of different channels for their supporters, for different regional groups of the Guards. Um, and so, I mean, there's one Telegram account called Bis- Bismichi Media. So this is where all of the very harmful propaganda of the Islamic Republic originates. Um, and so once a content is posted on Telegram, it will spread virally on all the other social media um, and cause a lot of harm. Obviously, you know, um, Telegram has certain thresholds. So um, they have, you know, acted on certain content that is, you know, well, like this is trying, they're trying to identify this activist and, you know, activists might get in touch, uh, human rights organizations might get in touch with Telegram and they will remove that content. Obviously, it takes a lot of time for them to respond and act. By the time they do act on those specific posts, it's gone viral everywhere. Right. Um, so it is really this open and safe space for the Islamic Republic. And I think similarly, other authoritarian states to basically pollute the information environment. Yeah. It's very interesting. Cause I watch it. I watch it spread. Um, and the, the vector is almost always telegram. Uh, and I'm much more familiar with Russian and Chechenian stuff than I am Iranian, but it's usually like, there's a story that goes viral. Something wild or, or bizarre was said, um, and at the back end, it was always a telegram post. Um, and it feels like that's the way it, that's it, kind of the way the regimes are now communicating, uh, with people. I, I've kind of been fascinated by that. And I wonder what's going to become of telegram. Um, but I, I mean, also, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, I hope it becomes a platform that at least has some human rights standards eventually. What do you think of, uh, what do you think of big tech, big U.S. tech's involvement in Iran? Uh, what could Twitter and Meta and other and Google others be doing uh, in the country to better help people communicate? Um, I mean, it's first good to understand that big tech usually does things based on profit um and what benefits there are in certain markets and so to be perfectly frank about the iranian context um big tech which is predominantly american will never be able to profit off of iran there's 
there's too many sanctions. So everything they do has to really be like a human rights, social, corporate responsibility kind of project and effort. Um, so we have, I mean, uh, I work for Article 19. We had been pushing, for example, uh, WhatsApp to put roll out a proxy. They invested. They created the proxy service. And this was really because of the Iranian context where they had so many users. And so they invested in that, which was obviously very beneficial. We need other um, platforms to similarly invest and roll out. Um, features like that that make accessibility to these platforms easier and obviously secure. Um, so this kind of work is really crucial. I mean, Meta can do a lot in terms of improving its content moderation. And one big step, and this was something I personally have worked on for a year and a half, which was to get um, the very popular protest slogan, death to Khamenei, um, allowed on the platform. Um, and so the oversight board ruled on this a couple of weeks ago, actually. And it's 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 quite a big win because um, censorship of this slogan meant that, you know, crucial human rights documentation was being censored uh, by Meta. So um, this was a really important move for human rights documentation and obviously for freedom of expression to kind of acknowledge that this popular protest slogan is not an incitement to violence, but part of the fabric of pro protests and dissidents. Um, when it comes to, I guess, other companies such as Google and Twitter, um, there is, I mean, there was a really great Wired article about Google the other week about how there are these massive groups of Google workers who really care and want to help and have been taking matters into their own hands. But officially, the companies haven't been doing um, that much. I mean, of course, uh, Google's human rights team, Jigsaw, created Outline VPN, which is great. But, you know, in order to use Outline VPN, um, someone needs to ho have a server and pay for server space um, and host the VPNs for Iranians. So Google could be doing a lot more to, you know, provide free credits to um, use Google server space to host VPNs for Iranians, for example. Um when it comes to Twitter, obviously, there has been, you know, a major shift in terms of where they allocate resources. And of course, it ha it has been somewhat of a loss that, you know, the human rights team was removed. Um, you know, content moderation, ensuring that harmful content and all these different policies, you know, no platform is perfect with these. So it's a constant... Um, you know, evolution. And it's an evolution with every sort of crises around the world. And so there has been a lot of lessons learned, I think, from this Iranian context these past few months, where you have this extremely online generation of protesters and kids um, with social media accounts that need, you know, aid and security when they're arrested and need assistance from these companies. Um, and and the potentials for harms online. And so, you know, we've been seeing hundreds of videos of forced confessions by the state and Iranian state media come out on Twitter. And, you know, there are human rights arguments and there's human rights documentation of how these how state media is actively involved um, in, you know, torture 
and producing things like forced confessions. And um, this is something Twitter really needs to work on in terms of um, removing this kind of harmful content. Because for now, there is a little bit of more of a laissez-faire attitude on platforming some of, you know, the regime's content. Um, Even the question of why, you know, regime officials can have their platforms uh, you know, Khamenei's Twitter account, I think, is a really interesting case study in, you know, Twitter not necessarily applying its policies. Um, Khamenei has broken uh, Twitter's policies countless times and they haven't removed the account and it's still, you know, spreading propaganda and misinformation, especially about protests. Um, so there's a lot of these questions, I think, um, and we're having a harder time, I guess, having these conversations about how their policies need to improve, how they need to be implemented or evolved in these contexts. We did have one positive um, move by Twitter, which is after weeks of the Article 19 team talking to the to um, Twitter about, I mean, this was at the height of kind of executions. Um, we had, you know, we've had four executions of protesters since um, since this movement beca- began in Iran. And, you know, there's been a big campaign to stop the executions and there's a Persian hashtag for it. It's called Edom Nakonid, do not execute. And of course, the regime has a counter hashtag, which is Edom Konid, do execute. And so they were using this hashtag to just put tons of propaganda and disinformation about how protesters were terrorists and criminals and how, um, you know, all these kids that were on death row or who had been executed or are going to be executed deserve to be killed. And so a very horrifying hashtag that was clearly being um, you know, used by the regime, regime supporters. And so Twitter did act in terms of blocking the hashtag from being searched. So that was somewhat of a win. It would have been better if <laughs> all the content on the hashtag was deleted systematically. Um, but I guess these conversations are still ongoing in terms of improving the kinds of harms that are seen online. What are the trends you're going to be watching this year? Um, definitely. I mean, you know, if you talk to Syrian activists who have seen what has happened in Syria with the Syrian revolution and the consequent civil war, um, uh, they have been warning in terms of, you know, what they experience in terms of online kind of cyber warfare, full on um, psychological operation campaigns, misinformation, disinformation campaigns to really chip away at opposition. I mean, I think some of the most successful campaigns were against the white helmets, um, kind of eroding at their credibility. And I think we're really going to be seeing that, um, especially as, um, these protests continue and the movement continues, we're going to see a lot of psychological manipulation. I mean, there's a massive trend of 
Um, <laughs> the Islamic Republic cyber armies pretending to be opposition to come and sow chaos amongst activists and opposition members. So I think there, this is just going to get worse. Um, you know, the revolutionary guards telegram channels are going to re- ramp up their efforts. They're going to try to hack more activists and post their personal content. We've also been seeing that on telegram, um, hacking personal phones and revealing like, photos or family photos or intimate photos. Um, and, you know, these kind of psyop campaigns of pretending to be opposition to sow chaos. So I think that's really going to be ramping up online and how obviously social media companies um, try to, you know, prevent these harms. I know a lot of this happens on Twitter as well, these kind of psyop campaigns. And so it's a question of whether Twitter has any resources left to dedicate to this kind of work, given all the layoffs they've had. Uh, it doesn't look good. I'll just say that for, for that particular website. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on to cyber and walking us through this. Where can people find your work and what are you working on right now? Yeah, if I mean, you can follow me on Twitter and look at um, the Iran digital rights page at Article 19 or my Oxford University page. Um, I'm going to be working a lot on content moderation policy, like I said, trying to see ways to reduce online harms and remove and follow what the regime is trying to do um, and still following what the regime is doing in terms of developing their own technologies for information controls. I would love to have you back on to talk about that. Uh, Thanks so much for having me. It's been a great combo. Thank you. All right, cyber listeners, that's all for this episode. We are going to be back a little bit later this week. I'm going to be talking with uh, motherboard reporter Maxwell Strawn about a man who is trying to use his money to live forever. It's a very fascinating story. Uh, I can't wait for you to hear it. Uh, If you like us, if you like the show, please follow us on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash motherboard or twitch.tv forward slash motherboard. We do do these live sometimes. Follow us there and you will be notified when we go live. You can even participate in the conversation. I'll see you a little bit later this week. Goodbye. Bye. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.